I definitely feel like we've killed it with all the wine we've consumed over the holidays is already. it being our livers? Because yes. <laughs> oh, I meant like killed it as in like, yeah, Killing that was it. great. Yeah, I mean, I but know, a little but... bit also on the killed our livers. Well, and it's just funny because... You know, you, you hang out and you have the dinners and you have, like, dessert and it's just, like, well, watching it, the games. I mean, I guess... And it's also one of those that, like, at least in our family, when you're sitting around, you're like, well, let's open a bottle. Yeah. Because <laughs> why not? And I, yeah. I will say, it is more fun, at least I think, to share a bottle with people and have, like, an experience out of it and yeah. not always just <laughs> sitting at home drinking a bottle. Drinking a bottle alone. Not that I haven't done both, like, because I have very and much that's so. true. It's called Tuesday Nights. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, absolutely. But, you know, just popping open a bottle alone, reheating your banquet TV turkey dinner for Thanksgiving, alone, crying. Alone. Alone. That's pretty sad. Well, I mean, not that I'm not going to say I haven't had a Thanksgiving like that before, but whatever, not this one. Well, and you know, it's funny because you'll look at the end of the night, how many bottles you've gone through and it's Mm. always like, oh my gosh, how do we do that? It's like that one episode of Friends where, and I think it's season two or something, but Monica's boyfriend, they suspect he has a drinking problem and the, the way this comes about is there's, you know, six of them and then I guess with him hanging out, so there's seven people and they're like... We went through, we went through six bottles. Oh my god! And I'm like, yeah, yeah. like, yeah. But I'm like, that doesn't seem like a lot for a group of twenty somethings hanging out on a no. Friday night. Like, and that's not even a bottle per person. Like, that's like three glasses each. No, and even when we're not recording and we're hanging out, like watching TV or just like hanging out on the weekends, having two bottles between us two, it's whatever. Well, anyway. This is blood and wine. Yes. Emphasis on the wine. Yeah. Well, for now. Yeah. <laughs> for now. Um, I'm Brittany. I'm Tyler. And thanks for tuning in. Yeah. And this one, we've got a really good episode for you guys. Yeah, no, I'm definitely really excited about this one. It's going to be a really good one. I, I mean, okay, so in my opinion, all of ours are. You're right. <laughs> but this one, I'm really looking forward to it, especially mm-hmm. because we started on one topic and it transformed into another. Yeah. And we've never really had that happened before yeah um so when we get into the topic section like that'll make more sense but yeah. i think this is gonna be a really awesome one but yeah uh speaking of really cool episodes so last week yes would love to hear what y'all thought about our interview with gloria and jackie recording that and just the entire process around it was absolutely incredible it was and it was just oh different and awesome and just just would love speak. to do more of that Oh, same. Oh, 100%. So let us know if that sounds interesting to y'all. And Yeah. One really cool thing about last week's episode is that our Patreon community actually got wind of it. We told them about it about a week or two before everyone else. Yeah, they had a little bit of an advance notice. And they are also going to get a couple of sneak peek little interview things that we're not Mm. sharing uh elsewhere yes so if y'all um are interested in little perks like that or obviously our murder minis which are little short episodes we release every other week that are patreon only absolutely check out our patreon page look at becoming a member and yeah well and on that note i do want to say 
Thank you, and welcome to two new Patreons yes. that we have. We have two new Chardonnay Syndicate members, yes. um, Chrissy and Sammy. So, welcome. Thank you all so much. Thank you, thank you. Start binging those murder minis that you can now access. Yes, because um, there's what? Like, there's 12 now. 12, yeah. Yeah, we're going to record 13 after this episode, mm-hmm. and... I picked a really good case for mine. Okay. Y'all, I will say, uh, I almost held on to this for a full episode once I finished research because it was, it was really good, but okay. I'm going to keep it for our murder minis because I want it to be something special for our Patreon subscribers. Yeah. And so. I'm actually excited about the case I picked for today's murder mini because it's one that I've read about, but not really thought about from the lens of true crime. And then. Interesting. I I sat on it and was like, ooh, yes. So. Well, I'm looking forward to whatever you pick then. Okay, me too. But also, be sure to subscribe to our regular episodes that come out every Tuesday. Yes, they do. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow it, or however you do it on Spotify. Yeah, Um, you can follow us on Spotify, and uh, we're on there, which is honestly a really easy way to pull up the episodes. Oh, absolutely. So, because I know, like, with Apple Podcasts, it's on your phone, but mm-hmm. if you're at the office and you're not, you know, you're just using your computer, it's easy mm-hmm. to just pull up the Spotify website. Yeah. And listen to it while you work. work. I can't listen to podcasts while I work. Just Me because neither. I then will stop working and just sit there staring and listening. Yeah. But- so, when I, whenever <laughs> I try to listen to a podcast at work, I either lose focus of what I'm working on or, much more often, get more focused on what I'm working on and then be completely lost in the podcast have to yeah. go back like 10 minutes but like what do i so i just listen to music while i work yeah same uh, but i know a lot of people will listen to a couple podcasts while they work and i'm like i don't know how you do it but... i don't either i don't know how you can think listen and for the, for a lot of jobs type all at the yeah. same time I'm like, how 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 are you doing this? I will say, so I know I just said I don't listen to podcasts while I work. A little bit of a lie, because there is oh, one podcast. Wow, the truth comes out. Well, there is one podcast that I can listen to at work. It's um, called Killing Time with Deborah and Zach. And they're just two comedians and friends that chat about just random shit. Really? And I think I can listen to it while I work, because it's one you don't have to pay attention to. Like, sometimes the episode's like 20, 30 minutes or something like that. And sometimes they'll go on like five minute tangents or stories and stuff. But for the most part, it's kind of like just sitting listening to like a couple friends talk. Right. You don't have to pay attention to it. So I do like that one. Yeah. But for the most part, I still would just rather listen to like music or something that I absolutely don't have to pay any attention to. Yeah, so your advice was that when you hang out with friends, you don't actually have to listen to them. So did you pick up on a couple words? I mean, depending (laughs) on the friends, yes. (laughs) I mean, we all have those friends that'll talk on and on about like, oh, I'm in love with this person. And then also about how they're single. And I'm like, well, which one is it? (laughs) Which one? What is, what's happening? I know, like, are you... you in love with this guy, but they're not good enough, but you're mad that you're like, I... I don't know. It's too much. It's too yeah. much. Um, no, I mean, I'm all for it, but sometimes it's just like, pick a path. <laughs> for real. <laughs> <laughs> um, I say all of this and could easily just say it in a mirror, but you know what? Whatever. I mean, same. 
But same. But yeah, it's fine. It's easier to talk about other people than to look introspectively. It's true. I'm too dark. And so on that uh, note, yeah. let's go to our current news because it's really exciting. It is. So we don't know. I do not know how I had not heard of this show until same. Uh, last night. We binged the entire season last night and then this morning. It's called Safe. Yeah. And it's a Netflix original. It's a British program. Yeah. However, Michael C. Hall is the only non-British person in there, but his accent is on point. See, yeah. I When I first saw it, or like heard him talking and stuff, he's, by the way, he's the guy who played Dexter. In yes, Dexter. yes. I used to assume like, oh, he, he put on an American accent for Dexter. No, he's from like North Carolina or something. Yeah. But the show follows, so he's this widowed d- doctor dad, dad, and his daughter goes missing, mm-hmm. and daughter's boyfriend is also missing. It just goes into this web of secrets and yeah. lies, and all of these neighbors, like, what's up with them? It's, it's so good. Well, and it's called safe because they're in this gated community mm-hmm. because um, there was something that happened in the city. They decided to be a little bit safer. Mm-hmm. They put up all the walls. And... But are the walls keeping the bad people out or keeping the bad people in? Safe, only on Netflix. But, <laughs> but it's really, really good. Yeah. Um, it's it's eight episodes. They're mm-hmm. each an hour. Oh, well, I guess like 45 minutes. Yeah, and it's... Like, when I say we did bit... Like, we did finish it. We finished all eight episodes in last night and this morning. But it is only eight. Yeah. So it was only like, I don't know, six hours. Yeah, which is a long time to watch something. Yeah. But you know what? It's It's also just like watching Titanic twice. A thing I wouldn't want to do in one sitting, but okay. <laughs> Have you never done it? Because I wouldn't put it past 12-year-old Tyler. I mean, uh, no comment. That's what I thought. Well. <laughs> uh, well, on that, um, do we want to go ahead and just hop into the topic? Yeah. Okay. So this one is, like I said, one I'm definitely looking forward to. Mm-hmm. And originally, when I was first trying to pick a topic, we were just talking it through and we were talking about celebrity murders. Yeah. There are quite a few of those that I know we'd mm-hmm. like to do that we've talked about off and on. And so that was our original intent. Yeah, we were going to go the celebrity Hollywood murder side kind yep. of thing. Yep, But then when we started talking a little bit more about it, it evolved into murders that shook the nation. Yes. Because, again, and, and those, I feel like those two topics are very hand in hand because with celebrities being in the spotlight, a lot of the times yeah. crimes are, you know, everyone knows about it, nation and or world. Absolutely. But that's what we decided to focus mm-hmm. on. And this also means yeah. we could do another episode in the future that's celebrity murders, which... Well, because I still think for both of our cases, we... Still kind of took it from that celebrity lens. Well, and I, I hesitated when you started to say that, but at the same time, the victim and the murderers, unfortunately, both hold that celebrity status because yeah. of how high profile these cases are. Exactly. Because there are a ton of uh, murders that shook the nation that don't involve celebrities. But since that was kind of where the topic came out of, I still think we held on to a little piece of that. We absolutely did. We absolutely and, did. Because there are... I'm excited for... I kind of want to do, like, ones that shocked the world. Let, let's just say, if if it ever 
I have the opportunity, I'm gonna do Princess Diana. Dude, you so should. Yeah. So just Because that did shake the world. Absolutely. Wow. Um well we definitely need to do that topic, but for now it's shook the nation and mm-hmm. um I'll, like I said, arguably these could also be considered world as well, but not yeah. to the same caliber as Princess Die. No, yeah. You know? Both of ours are very <laughs> I would say US focused. They're very I US would, focused. Well, because like I wouldn't be so shocked if I met someone from like France who didn't really know all the like the details all of the these details. cases or Fair. the impact of it, especially compared to something like Princess Di. Right. No, I totally agree. Totally agree. All right. Well, I really want to know what wine you picked. Okay. So the wine I picked for today is Las Baracas Gran Reserva. It's a Tempranillo Cabernet 2011 from Catalonia, Spain. And look at this bottle. Oh, it's gorgeous. It has one of those little, like, wire net things things around it (laughs) that I don't actually really know how you're supposed to take off. Well, I think you just cut it. Or... Oh, I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to pull it off. Oh, wow. It is, like, wire. Yeah. And this bottle looks fancy as fuck. I know. Let's do this. Look at this shit. Yeah, that is a really fancy looking label. Well, and I just want to first give a little background on the wine, but specifically the winemaker. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was made specifically by Ramon Roqueta, and he was the Catalan Association of Sommeliers 2016 Winemaker of the Year. Oh, cool. And his family has winemaking history since the Middle Ages. Oh my gosh. So this is what they do. Yeah. So the Roqueta family's winemaking history goes all the way back to 1199. That's which I know, That's so fucking this long is, ago. Okay. Well, so I, I think we can easily say this family's wine is the oldest we've ever had. It's also 2011. So it is the oldest bottle that we ever have also true for the show. So the wine is named after the ancient stone huts that are all over the family's vineyards. So Las Barracas is a blend of 60% Tempranillo and 40% Cabernet Sauvignon. And both of these grow on the family's property in Catalonia. So That's so cool. I know. And you said this was in Spain, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So Catalonia, it's on the Mediterranean coast between the border of France and Spain. So Catalonia is, it's a very proud region. Most people there consider themselves Catalan first. And Spanish second. Mm-hmm. It's where, um, like, Barcelona is the capital of the region. They actually have a current pretty strong secession movement. Oh. Uh, making the state of Catalan its own country. That's right. No, I, mm-hmm. I remember hearing about this a couple of months ago, I guess. Yeah. Well, did when you I, tell me or did something happen? I, I might have told you because when I visited Barcelona, uh, there were a lot of not protests, but, like, a street fair. Like, it was happy. People were selling a lot of, like, uh, Catalan country flags. And it just, it had a very, like, I don't know, strong independence movement on yeah. it. So, this wine in particular, the aroma is sweet red fruits and plum lifted by notes of vanilla and tobacco. This sounds wonderful. I know. And the taste is fine-grained tannins vibrant strawberry and raspberry flavors rounded out by a mellow oakiness uh yes i want to taste that so it's a medium bodied red 
and it goes great with pork and other cured meats, which, I mean, it's a Spanish wine, so of course, cured meats would be great. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm so ready to open this. Oh, also, this bottle was like, um, you can find it anywhere from like 17 to the low 20s. It's a little little on the pricier side, but... Well, but that makes sense. I I saw it and was like, we have to. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say 17 to low 20s for a 2011... Yeah. That doesn't seem too bad. No. Well, and the Grand Reservas specifically are only made from, like, really excellent years, like 2011. Oh. And they only release them at their peaks, like, after they've been in the oak barrels the perfect amount of time. Oh. Which is apparently what makes them real good. Okay, well, I'm really excited to try this one, then. Me I, d- I think I've said that, I don't even know how many times, but I'm really excited. No. Oh my gosh, this is going to be so good. Yeah, it really will. Okay. Well, and I think we're going to do the practice that we started last episode, where we're going to pour our glasses and let it breathe a tiny bit before we taste it. Especially with with this one, we want to make sure that we're communicating the right flavors to y'all. So, what's on the cork? Oh, embotellado and... Origin, so bottled in origin, so it was bottled in Spain, is that, what the cork says. It says it in wait. Spanish and English. But it's also, remember what our French cork said in French. Oh, so maybe it's like an EU thing. Maybe. Oh, that's cool. I'm going to have to look that up. Or if one of y'all know, let yeah. us know, because I didn't realize that. Also, we're drinking these out of some new glasses that we just got. I know. The glasses have the little, like, nub in the bottom that wine bottles do the little like bloop. they're stemless they're stemless yes. and they have that little nub in there but there are these crystal glasses that i'm really into the size of me too well i poured a almost the whole bottle into two glasses it's fine i'm really excited <laughs> well we're gonna let a lot of this breathe yeah that's that was my plan i wanted it to sure. breathe a lot yes so mm-hmm. we can get through your whole case with one glass because it's not gonna happen nope <laughs> Uh, well, while it breathes, let's smell it. Okay. While it breathes, let's smell it. <laughs> so weird. It's like wine language. <laughs> Ooh. It smells really good. I know. I think I get the hint of, like, tobacco that they're talking about. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things that I'm really excited to... I I like the combo of vanilla and tobacco. Mm-hmm. So. And it's, I think it's interesting. Whenever I read wine notes of like, oh, it has hints of tobacco. I never taste like actual tobacco, but I taste like when a wine has that, that flavor in it, I can taste that in other ones. So I'm like, oh, that's what they mean. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. But. All right. Well, it's now time for you to jump into your case. Okay. So <laughs> I know you just did the wine, but now you're also first this week. I know. I really want to drink this wine now. Maybe we can go ahead and just have our first sip. Okay. Well, so I want to tell you a stupid thing before. It's I guess it's not a stupid thing, but one thing that I just learned recently is how to properly clink your yeah, wine that's glasses. That's not a stupid thing. That is just a thing that, like, of course our mother knows and we don't. <laughs> so what you do is you don't clink the top of the glass. You clink the 
the bottom of the glass, like more mm-hmm. towards the bottom. On on a wine glass, it's the fattest part of it because that yeah. gives you the often on clink. With these being stimulus, I don't know what our clink's going to be, but cheers. Cheers. Not a great clink. <laughs> yeah. It's also because they're really full. Well, sorry. <laughs> that is smooth. Mm-hmm. I like this. It's definitely medium-bodied. I, I think I was expecting a little bit more full-bodied, even though you told me it was medium. Me too. It definitely... But it's that Tempranillo. Yeah, it is 60% Tempranillo. Yeah. So that makes sense. Which... As far as medium bodied, mm. or I guess medium, medium to light bodied wines go, Tempranillo is by far my favorite. Oh, same. I love I, Tempranillo. It's normally when I get a Spanish wine, I get a Tempranillo. Well, yeah, but if I if I get a red that's not a, um, a Cab or a Zinfandel, I'll usually get a Tempranillo. Yeah. Oh yeah. I like this wine. I already had like four drinks of mm. it. Mm. Oh my gosh. Okay. This is so good. I know. <laughs> Y'all. Y'all. Okay. Go get this wine. Get the wine. I'm going to jump into my case. Okay. So, I want to first preface this that there is a lot of information in my case and in the investigation, the trial, that I'm purposefully leaving out because in a lot of my research and in just a lot of things I've seen about this case before, it focuses so, so much on the accused. Right. Rather than the victims. And I really hate that. Well, and that's why I mentioned earlier that the celebrity status, unfortunately, is not just of our yeah. victims. Yeah. You'll understand in just a few seconds when I tell you all what the case is. But I just want to let you all know, if you're like, why didn't Tyler talk about this? I did it on purpose. There's a reason for it. I want to keep the focus as much as I can on the victims. So my case is the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. Yes. Also known more colloquially, more known by many, as the O.J. Simpson trial and the O.J. Simpson murders. People v. O.J. Yeah. So, the sources I used are a lot of them. I figured there would be. (laughs) CNN, the LA Times, the Chicago Tribune, Business Insider, the New York Times, another article by the LA Times, History, Law Absolute, IndieWire, CBS, and again, CNN. Well, and again, this case is so, so well known. Oh, yeah. I have watched countless documentaries, mm-hmm. TV series. I will say that ESPN 30 for 30 mm-hmm. is a fantastic dive into the case and where the country was at that time and yeah. the trial. Like, that's a really good, I, I would, I was about to say high level and that's the opposite of what I meant. It's, it's a really great deep dive into yes. it because it's like 10 hours or so total, yeah. maybe. Um, and then there's the, the, the FX show. Yeah, the that they did. P- American Crime Story People v. OJ. Which was really, really, really done good. so well. It was, it was one of my favorite things I've watched focused on this case. Me too. And the acting in it was superb. And it really goes into each character during the trial. But like most everything, it focuses on the trial. That sensational piece. It of, does. O.J. Simpson 
being arrested and in his trial mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and doesn't focus on the victims, which in this case, that's a huge point that the victim families even speak out about. Oh, yeah. Ron Goldman is oftentimes called like the unknown victim because he yeah. will be mentioned in maybe one sentence, but it will focus a little bit on Nicole, but for the most part, it will just All talk about, about OJ. OJ. All about OJ. And, uh, yeah. So, I wanted to try to do little, little bit of a different spin yeah. on it. So, basically, if y'all want OJ's background and knowing who he was and why mm-hmm. he was so slow for status, really do go watch that 30 for 30 from e- by ESPN. Absolutely. Well, and one thing... Oh! Oh, my God. I'm sorry. It is not a 30 by 30. It's OJ Made in America. Oh. Sorry. What? Major wrong... Was okay. thinking it if I, I watched a thirty by thirty the other day and I had that in my mind, but it's OJ made in America oh, okay. and it's like um, they did it in twenty sixteen or whatever. But again, if you want all the background on OJ, yeah. you know he's a football player, which is why ESPN did this. But it goes into all of the details. So, yeah. okay, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, you're good. Well, one thing that's real important to remember with this case and especially with the trial and everything that went on with that is to remember the time and what was going on. You can't you can't separate this case from where it was and what was happening no, around that you time. Because it was in Los Angeles two years after the LA race riots. I mean it was race was a huge, huge issue in this case. Yes. And even still today there's a big racial divide on this case. And it can't be removed. No, from it, it it cannot be removed. Um, it, but it really can't. All right, I'm gonna jump in. So on the night of June 12th of 1994, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman were stabbed to death in the Western Los Angeles neighborhood of Brentwood. Mm-hmm. At 6:30 p.m. earlier that night, Nicole, her children, and several others—I think her sister, her mom, a couple yeah. friends all went to dinner at the Mezzaluna restaurant where Ron worked as a waiter. Yeah. So they had dinner. They left the restaurant at about 8 p.m., stopped for ice cream afterwards, and then headed home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Simple family gathering, going out. Yeah. Yeah. So about 9.15, one of Nicole's sisters calls the restaurant and is like, oh, mom left her glasses there. Um... Like, we can come pick him up. And Ron, since he knew Nicole, was like, no, 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 don't worry about it. I'll pick them up, and I can bring them over here in just a bit. being a great guy. Yeah. Just like, oh, okay, well, I know Nicole. I'll swing swing these by when I get off. Yeah, no problem. So nice. And so Ron places Nicole's mother's glasses into a white envelope and heads over to Nicole's house at about 9.50, 10 p.m. Yeah. So just over two hours later... The bodies of Nicole and Ron would be found by their neighbor. They had both been stabbed to death and left in front of Nicole's home. Such a small window. Yeah. I hadn't remembered that it was such a small window from the time that he left the restaurant to the time that their bodies were found. Oh, yeah. It was a very small window. I believe he was found like he still had his keys in his hand. Like, he had just gotten there when he was murdered. So, Nicole was found sprawled on the steps of the walkway in front of the house, 
shortly after midnight. Yeah. And she was found because there, one of the neighbor's dogs was barking. Yeah. It was barking. It was really loud. So the neighbor's like, okay, what the fuck's going on? Like, why won't this dog stop? Yeah. And that's when he found Nicole. Ugh. Ron was found just a few feet away from her laying in the shrubbery. Both of them were fully clothed. And officers said that there were signs of a struggle, but there was no evidence that the attack occurred during a robbery or a burglary. Because nothing was missing? Yeah. So, Nicole was most likely murdered first, as although she was found lying in the walkway in a pool of her own blood, her feet were clean. Like, she didn't have any blood on her feet. Oh, so she wouldn't have been walking around. Yeah, and the bottom of Ron's shoes were stained with blood. Well, and that's an interesting, that's a detail I hadn't ever really thought of. Mm -hmm. um, Like, who was... Who was killed first in that yeah. scenario? And oh there... my gosh. I mean, okay. No, I'm not going to say it, but I just had all these thoughts go through my head. Yeah. Well, and there are a lot of thoughts about what happened. Most people believe that just because of the way the uh, house and everything was set up yeah. is that Nicole had to go to the front door to answer it. Yeah. Like, the, I think the inter- her intercom was broken. So someone could buzz in, but she had to, like, physically go. go. open the door. And so either she went to let Ron in, and that's when they were attacked, or Ron had just arrived, had given the glasses, another person buzzes, Nicole goes, she's attacked, Ron runs out to try to protect her, and they're both killed. Yeah. I've seen both of... um, Unfortunately, because of this, the only witness to this is the murderer well and is there uh the possibility of you know the murderer shows up to the door he's attack or they are attacking nicole and ron just happens to arrive at that time possibly but since ron was found i believe inside the gate it's unclear right so it could have been if the killer you know had the gate open or if the gate was still open I'm not sure exactly how the gate works. I'm not either. Well, and it's... You're right. There are so many different scenarios, and only one person actually knows what happened. Yep. So, Nicole was found on her left side, still wearing her earrings and her wristwatch. Her right hand was clutching her throat, and her left arm was extended in what detectives referred to as a death grip convulsion. Oh, God. Uh, Her body showed no signs of a struggle. So she wasn't able to fight back when she was murdered. Oh, geez. On the other hand, Ron's face, hands, and side were scratched and bruised. He most likely had just arrived. You know, he still had his keys in his hand when the attack happened. Yeah. And his keys were found near his body. Right, which which would imply he was still holding them. Yeah. Yeah. So Ron had put up a fight... And this fight may have even ripped a white metal ring from his finger um, that was found lying under his body. So it was like a fight. Like, his ring came off and... I don't even know how that happens. I don't either. But he was fighting for his life and Nicole's life. Absolutely. Um, His shirt had been pulled up his back and there was a fresh mark of dirt near his body. So it was a... It was a very violent death for him. Yes. Oh, it was. Well, for both of them. 
um, Nicole had been brutally slashed and her neck was almost severed. She was almost decapitated. The wound was so deep. Yeah. And forensics revealed that Ron had been stabbed repeatedly at least 30 times. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, that, I didn't realize he was stabbed that many times. Mm -hmm. Well, and this, my reaction, because as you know, I've seen, like I said, a ton of stuff about this case. There's still stuff I don't know because this is never the focus. Exactly. They don't focus on the victims. I had to, this is from like four articles to just piece this together. And when I was doing my research, I specifically didn't look for anything about OJ. I just typed in. Nicole Brown Simpson, Ron Goldman, and even still trying to find information on them was not as easy as you would think, which is really sad. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It is really sad. It should be, you should be able to find more information about the victims, but that's Mm -hmm. never, that's oftentimes not the case. One example I just thought of was like John Bonet, which you do find a lot about her because a lot is known about her, mm-hmm. but it's also because that one's unsolved. Yeah. So. so you can only focus so much on her brother, <clears throat> but, um, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> I mean, let's be real. That's at least where my theory is of who killed her, but <laughs> that's for another day. Yes, it is. So Nicole Brown Simpson was the ex-wife of former football star Orenthal James Simpson, most commonly known as OJ. The juice. The juice. Which is really interesting. I I don't know why. I find it just weird how it's like, it's his initials, it's OJ, and then I called him the juice. Like, it it very much makes sense, but it's one of those things where I'm like... if you met someone in Orenthal and they were like, juice, you'd be like, where is the connection? (laughs) But Orenthal James, OJ, orange juice, the juice. Yeah. No one called him orange, though. Um, They did not. But Nicole and OJ had dated for a number of years before his divorce with his first wife was finalized. Yeah. And their dating life and marriage was filled with abuse. Oh, yeah. Oh, Um, yeah. One fight in 1984, before they were married, resulted in Nicole calling the cops after he accidentally hit one of the rims of her car with a baseball bat. He then proceeded to whack the hood of the car, too, but no charges were filed. It's not Um, an accident. That sounds very purposeful. uh, Absolutely. Uh, The two married in 1985, the following year. Oh, it was probably a proposal night. Maybe. So, in another incident on January 1st of 1989, OJ beat Nicole so badly that she required treatment at the hospital. And records also portrayed her as terrified for her life. When police arrived God. after she called 911 after the beating, she cried and held on to one of the officers, repeating, he's going to kill me. And when the officers asked who she's talking about, who's going to kill her, she answered, OJ. And the officer then asked, do you mean OJ Simpson, the football player? And she says, yes. She was shaking and she's only wearing a bra and sweatpants at this time. So she's fucking terrifying. Yeah. And... Oh, that makes my stomach churn that that's how the officer responded. Yeah. So she said that her husband had kicked and slapped her. She told the police, you never do anything to her. You never do anything about him. You talk to him and then you leave. I want him arrested. I want him out so I can get my kids. Like, she was fucking horrifying. But Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this 
guy, he's celebrity status. He's probably some of these officers, he's like their football star, their favorite player, and they're starstruck when yeah, he's I was say, they're absolutely beating starstruck. his wife. So instead of doing their job, they're mm-hmm. wanting to get his fucking autograph. Yeah. So OJ then appeared at the gate and began yelling at his wife. When the police told him that they were going to arrest him, he yelled, The police have been out here eight times before, and now you're going to arrest me for this? This is a family matter. Why do you want to make a big deal of it? We can handle it. He then got in his blue Bentley and sped away. Oh my god. So, four months after this 1989 incident, OJ pleaded no contest to a charge of spousal abuse, and he was sentenced by a judge to 120 hours of community service and two years probation. Basically nothing. Basically fucking nothing. The judge also fined him $200 and ordered him to give $500 to a shelter for battered women. Literally, it's OJ. He yeah. could have given a whole lot more than $500. Uh, yeah. That's insulting. So the prosecutor in this 1989 case, Deputy City Attorney Robert Pingle, said that because of the severity of the beating, he had requested that OJ serve 30 days in jail and undergo an intensive year-long program for men who batter their wives. Yeah. Instead, he was allowed to receive counseling from a psychiatrist of his choice. And this arrangement has been characterized by domestic violence experts as highly unusual and ineffective. Yeah. And Robert Pingle said that the judge might have been trying to accommodate OJ's busy schedule, saying that it had something to do with a new television program, something for one of the networks. Because of his schedule, it's possible that he asked that some of his contacts with psychiatrists just be by telephone. So because he's this celebrity, because at this time he's doing a lot of commercials, he's still very much in the limelight, he doesn't get punished. Yep. No, I (sighs) this this is one of those things that, unfortunately, in our system, when you have a lot of money and status, Mm -hmm. you can get out of things. Because it's like, even when you do things, you pay your way out of it. Yeah. You pay for the top lawyers. Oh, absolutely. And you just, yeah. Well, I don't need talk- to go any further into it. That's that's. We've talked about it so much about how if you are wealthy, you aren't punished. Even going as uh, more complex as like the bail system. If you have money to get bailed out, boom, you can go home that night. Yep. If you just don't have money, if you are a working person or if you're just not wealthy or don't have access to a bondsman or the ability to pay them yeah you're in jail you're in jail you haven't been convicted of anything you'd be a thousand percent innocent you have to stay in jail whereas rich person gets to go because they have money yeah and i know it's it's a very very messed up system yeah and that's without even touching on the fact that like people of color for example who are systematically disenfranchised and make less money on the dollar than, like, white men are almost always given much higher bail. As But, yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Oh. This is... That's fucked up. It's like I always say, the criminal justice reform is one of the biggest civil rights issues of our fucking time. It is. So, the 1989 beating of Nicole left her with a cut lip a swollen and blackened left eye and cheek, 
and a handprint on her neck. It's terrifying. There are photos mm-hmm. that you can see of her, um, I guess, when she was taken in and they were documenting it. And it's oh. it's so sad. It's horrifying. And it's the closest thing, because I wasn't alive yet, and I don't... By the time I have memories of anything revolving around Nicole Brown, Ron Goldman, or OJ is after the trial and after everything. Right. But this reminds me very much of uh, when Rihanna was attacked by Chris Brown. Yeah. And you see the photos of her bruised and beaten face and just the, the backlash on everyone... It makes me sad because for a hot minute, people were like, holy shit, how to, you know, what the fuck, Chris Brown. Yeah. Monster. And then a year later, he has a couple more songs in the top ten. People forget about it. You have all these people saying like, oh, he's so hot, I wouldn't care if he hit me. Garbage shit like, oh my god. And just attacking Rihanna for being a victim and attacking her for... uh, Because I think after... That, like, a couple years or months later, she, like, dated him again or was still with him after that. Like, I just attacking so, yeah. her for for staying for, for and then for leaving. And, and it's just all this fucked and fucking victim shaming and victim blaming. And, yeah. So. I know. I know. Well, and I do remember the OJ case. I was very young. Mm-hmm. I was maybe seven or something like that. But yeah. I, I remember the infamous Bronco chase and all of that stuff and uh, seeing it on TV. Mm-hmm. So, but I was also way too young to understand anything other than the car chase. Like yeah. the reason I remember that is because I knew that was a car chase and that meant it was bad. Yeah. That was my level of understanding at the time. Absolutely. So three years after this attack, uh, Nicole filed for divorce in 1992. Yes. So, a little bit of background on Ron. Ron was 25 at the time, and he had a really close God, relationship. He was so young. He was, so, he was my age. Yeah. And Nicole had just turned 35, like, a month prior or something. Okay, yeah. And they were really good friends. They exercised together. They went to dance clubs together. They went... They would often meet up for coffee or dinner, and they had met a couple months prior, and they were just really, they had become really good friends. They had a good connection. What all of, like, their friends say and everything is there wasn't a romantic connection between them. They were just friends. Yeah. Yeah. So, Ron would tell people that he he was just friends with Nicole, and he would boast about how gorgeous she was and talked about how how great it felt walking with her and, you know, seeing the heads turn to look at them or people like eyeing them when they he pulls up in her white Ferrari in front of the club. But, uh, yeah. I mean, what 25-year-old wouldn't? Exactly. And he... Regardless of a romantic thing or not, if you even mm-hmm. have... Yeah, just a friend that's... You're that's giving you the ability to do all these things, especially if you are. I mean, he's he was a waiter. It, yeah. It's not like he was. The it's not industry. like he was like super like celeb style and everything yeah. like she was. And so of course he's bragging yeah. and like shit. I would brag mm-hmm. if I rolled up in a Ferrari, even if it was with some 
I don't know, 98-year-old guy who just bought it because he wanted a Ferrari. Exactly. Well, <laughs> and I read a couple articles that um, were interviews with his friends, and yeah. they were all saying that, like, when Ron had a girlfriend, he always bragged and would go on and on about his girlfriend. Like, and he would just love to talk about them, about how much he was in love with them and stuff. And he didn't do that with Nicole. He didn't brag about being with her. He was like, oh, we're just friends. So pretty much when you're the type of guy who's always like, oh, yeah, you know, Susan, that's my girlfriend, girlfriend, GF, future right. Miss Goldman or whatever. If he not, were dating yeah. Nicole, like, it it would be very obvious. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because also, he's 25. He's 25. Yeah. And, she, like, let's be real, she's gorgeous. I'd be shouting that from the rooftops, too. She is gorgeous. She's so, so beautiful. So, he had moved from Chicago in 1987. So, about seven years before the attack. Yeah. And he quickly became enamored with the California lifestyle. He loved surfing, playing volleyball, and going to nightclubs. Like, that was just that he loved being a California guy. Totally. So, before becoming a waiter, he worked as a tennis coach mm -hmm. um, and an employment headhunter. Oh. And when he was younger, he was a camp counselor, and he volunteered to help disabled children. Of course he did. Of course he did. Oh, a, my gosh. He was a good guy. Yeah. Um, he'd recently become licensed to be an emergency medical technician, an EMT, like on the ambulances yeah. and stuff. Wow. Oh, I did not know that. Mm -hmm. But he had decided not to pursue pursue that, and he told his friends that eventually he saw himself, he wanted to own a bar or a restaurant in the Brentwood area. Okay. And his sister said that what he wanted most out of life was to marry and have a family. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So, with overwhelming evidence against him, including the prior record of domestic violence towards Nicole... O.J. Simpson became the chief suspect in Nicole and Ron's murders. Yeah. Yeah. So some Very of, much not a stretch of the imagination. Yeah. Some of this evidence against him, uh, investigators found blood drops alongside bloody shoe prints walking away from Nicole and Ron's bodies, as well as blood on a gate on the back of the murder scene, like the back gate of the house. Yeah. So blood from these places had the same genetic markers as OJ, and OJ also had a fresh cut on his hand. Oh, which, how about that? One of the things that always makes me so mad about this case is this: if this exact trial and all of the evidence and all this happened today with how much more the public understands DNA, DNA I mean... That right there would have been a conviction. I know. Boom. Also, I just will clearly put this out there because I keep making snide remarks, but I clearly feel like he's very guilty. I do too. I think I've also read theories that it was his son and he was trying to cover up for it. And that I could also see, but I'm very, very much in the camp that he's guilty, especially with... Some of the things that happened after the trial and everything that I'll get into. Yeah. But, yeah. Because, like, the DNA that was found as well, it was one that, at the time, DNA wasn't really used and wasn't really well It was not understood. Public. 
So when they say like, oh, when a scientist says there is a high probability that this is his blood, that's not meaning like, oh, most likely, you know, one in 10. That's meaning like one in four billion. Yeah. Or so like there's literally maybe two people on this earth that this blood could be. One of them is OJ, the ex-husband of one of the murder victims. Like, boom. Yes. So the bloody shoe prints were a size 12 Bruno Magli shoe, and OJ wore a size 12. Yeah. But there wasn't any evidence if he had ever bought this type of shoe specifically, but it wasn't his size. There was a cashmere-lined Eris light glove that was found at the murder scene, and another of the same glove that was found behind OJ's guest house. Mm Mm-hmm. There were also a pair of bloodied, crumpled socks that were found in the foot of OJ's bed, and DNA tests found genetic markers for OJ and Nicole on this sock, which again, the DNA is there. Like, like today, the that would gun. be the the conviction. Like, the, yes. it would be a short as shit trial, boom, it's over. Yes, this was not a short as shit trial. Nope. There was also a small spot of blood that was found near the driver's outside door handle of OJ's Bronco, and more blood was found smeared inside the console, door, steering wheel, and carpet. Can we also just stop for a tiny moment, and I want to make a comment, I'm not trying to sound insensitive, but it just came to me. You mentioned earlier that had a Bentley, and he Mm -hmm. also has a Bronco, and I just feel like those are so... Very different cars on the spectrum. Uh, yeah. Actually, I never thought about that, but you'd think he would at least have, like, I don't know, a Mercedes SUV or... Well, and it's like OJ seems as if he was the, this huge, cocky motherfucker yeah. who has a Bentley. Why would he also have a Bronco? But anyway, that is yeah. obviously I mean, very outside of He could be matters, wanting but... to have something that's a little less conspicuous a little less like OJ's here but he kind of seems like the kind of guy who wants that so I don't know yeah so although OJ had agreed to turn himself in he on on that day he was going to turn himself in he escaped with a friend in his white Ford Bronco and this was June 17th Mm -hmm. he was carrying his passport a disguise and $8,750 in cash oh yeah, which is a lot. It, it, yeah, it's a lot of cash. So, OJ's car was spotted that afternoon, but he refused to surrender immediately. He was threatening to kill himself and mm-hmm. led police on a low-speed chase through the Los Angeles freeways. And this, the entire nation was watching. This was the first, mm-hmm. I believe, the first big taste nationally and globally of the case was the chase. I think so. And I believe that they cut into like a a national championship basketball game or something yeah. to show this coverage. Mm-hmm. And like that was how big of a deal it is because you don't interrupt live sports. No. Unless like that, it's like super, super, super breaking which news. Which is so weird. But yeah. No, I mean, I mean it, it's, yeah. Yeah. But um, eventually OJ gave himself up. Um, after the chase led them back to his home in Brentwood. So OJ's defense team, which was led by Johnny Cochran, would later be called the Dream Team mm-hmm. in what would be known as the Trial of the Century. One of the biggest reasons this case 
shocked the nation is just the huge amount of publicity oh, in yeah. the trial. Oh, yeah. There were the cameras and live TV broadcast was allowed to show the trial in full. Um, obviously, angled away so you can't see the jury's faces and stuff. But the nation watched this. This became something that replaced, you know, it wasn't stay at, or, you know, people at home watching the daytime soaps or whatever. They were watching the OJ trial. Yeah. They were watching the, you know, to see if they were going to find him guilty of Nicole and Ron's murder. Well, and hopefully this doesn't sound like too naive of a question, but are there a lot of trials that are televised nowadays? I think just the heavy criticism around this one is one of the big reasons why. Well, because I feel like there are, they're recorded. I'm just thinking of all mm-hmm. of the documentaries and stuff we watch where you can see trial footage. Yeah, they, they are, I think in almost every case, they are recorded. Um, but I think for the most part, the, there's not going to be live coverage. a live coverage of it. Yeah. Yeah. The lead prosecutor on the trial was Marsha Clark, Mm -hmm. and Christopher Darden was another prosecutor who helped orchestrate the legal strategy for the prosecution team. Yes. Two of the witnesses in the case who rose to prominence after the trial were Cato Kalin and Mark Furman. Oh, yep, 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 yep. Those names are very familiar. Yep. So, Cato Kalin was a friend of Nicole but lived in O.J.'s house at the time of the murders. He kind of became somewhat of a star during the trial when he was asked what happened the night of the murder. I mean, it was his focus because he was a very, like, stereotypical California dude. Yeah. Like, the long hair, the pretty face, the tanning. the Like, it, Ed, that became a thing. Yeah. And it it blows my mind that things like that, like, that's what people grasped onto, not the murders. I know. And in in all of this, you get get some of these people becoming minor celebrities out of this. Marsha Clark was put, was uh, in multiple magazines uh, because of, like, she she did her hair differently or, oh, she got a makeover. And it's like, are you, like... Really think about what <clears throat> this is a murder trial. These are two families trying to seek justice for the murder of their children or their brother or sister. I know. And you're making this into just trashy entertainment. Well, and it's like taking the focus away from the victims and what yeah. should be focused on and focusing on materialistic, stupid celebrity shit. Yeah. But yeah. But it sold everything. It did. Papers. So, Mark Furman. All of it. Yeah. Mark Furman, the other one that got more celebrity status, was an investigator from the LAPD who found the infamous bloody glove. He was the one who found it. And the defense accused him of planting the gloves to frame Simpson because he was a racist. Yep. And Furman was later discredited and convicted of perjury after stating that he had not used the N-word before recordings were published of him using it several times. Over and over and over and over. And it's it's shit like that that I'm like, you, Furman, you should absolutely be, like, off the fucking police force, like, 
but because I I think he absolutely did tamper with evidence. No, I think he did 100% as well. 100% because he was a racist, but also because he is this racist asshole, you know, someone who was likely guilty walked free walked away. because yeah. you know, tampering with this evidence discredited the entire prosecution. In everything they would say. It did. And as you have alluded to, uh, race became literally everything this oh. trial was about. Well, and it's... That's in something that's huge. Is And it's it's important because at the time, the uh, Rodney King mm-hmm. beating by L.A. police officers... It was like two years prior? It was two years prior. It was very fresh in everyone's mind yeah. that these L.A. police officers were racist as fuck beating this black guy and arresting him, which was one of the causes of the L.A. riots. So there's already this predisposition notion that the L.A. police are racist. Yeah. And then Furman does this because he is a racist, and it raised a huge issue in this in this case. Yeah. It was a big part of the defense, and it absolutely, absolutely did have a wide-reaching effect on this case, but that yeah. doesn't mean that he was not guilty. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I 100% agree with that. It's what this case turned into. It turned into just this racial discussion about yeah. the LAPD being racist and how they were doing wrong and, and it, not at all about the murders. And it, they absolutely were doing wrong and absolutely did have racists in their midst and had policies that very much targeted minorities and people of color, but because of it highlighting that, it just took away even more focus from Nicole and Ron. It did. And these two young people, one a young mother, one a uh, waiter, just really starting his adult life, uh, both of them had families that loved them, were stabbed to death. And it was completely taken away from all of this. Yeah. So, arguably the most famous day in the trial was when O.J. was asked by prosecutor Christopher Darden to try on the glove that was found at the scene of the crime. Mm -hmm. O.J.'s defense team said that he had to wear a latex glove underneath the leather one, and as O.J. tried to put the glove on, it was too small for his hands, and it was too tight. And at this point was highlighted in the closing statements of the trial when Johnny Cochran, OJ's defense lawyer, mm-hmm. said the famous line, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Yeah. Well, and w- another thing I read was that I think OJ was on blood the pressure meds or something. Arthritis medication. Arthritis meds. And he had recently stopped taking it. So your which hands makes your swell. hands swell. Yep. Yeah. Which is so stupid that if that if this glove doesn't fit right now, obviously he couldn't have done any of it. Like, it's... That's stupid. It is. It's like saying, if the pair of pants that I wore three years ago doesn't fit today, Mm -hmm. that it wasn't me, that... I don't know. Whatever. I didn't do anything. But what I'm saying is, like... Well, because this this trial is happening a year or more after the murders. Yeah. And... A lot of things in your body can change over a year. Absolutely. So, on October 3rd, 1995... At 1.07 p.m. Eastern Time, O.J. Simpson was found not guilty of two murders. Just still, still blows my mind. Yeah. 
So now we're going to flash forward about 11 years to 2006. Okay. And talk about his book, If I Did It. Ah, ha, ha. Oh, yeah. I know, I, I so, know a little bit about this book. Book publisher Judith Regan was interviewing OJ for the HarperCollins book that the two were working on called If I Did It. And the interview that featured was OJ giving a hypothetical account of the night of the murders. According to Reagan, OJ and his attorney approached her about writing a book about Nicole and Ron's murders. The lawyer told her that OJ was willing to confess, but only under the condition that they present the confession as a what if. Wait, what? Yeah, so he he was going to tell her all of the details and everything about this, but from a hypothetical perspective. Right, because he didn't do it, but so he could just imagine what it would be yeah. like if he had. So, Reagan said that, I received a phone call from an attorney who said OJ was ready to confess. I thought it was some kind of scam and didn't believe him, but I took his number and said I'd call him back. The next day, I called him back, and he said O.J. was willing to confess. The only condition that he had was that he didn't want to call the book, I Did It. He wanted to put an if in front of it, so that he would have deniability with his children. He couldn't face his children, and he couldn't tell them that he had done it. That was the way portrayed to me. That was his only condition. Oh my god. So OJ started out this interview clearly stating that the entire scenario being presented was hypothetical. Right. It was very difficult for me because it's hypothetical. I know and I accept the fact that people are going to feel whatever they're going to. OJ then hypothetically describes the beginning of the night when he met up with a friend named Charlie. In the book, the hypothetical is this guy Charlie shows up. This guy used to be friends with, and I don't know why he had been by Nicole's house, but he told me, you won't believe what's going on over there. And I remember thinking, whatever's going on over there, this has got to stop. At this point, Reagan asks Simpson where he parked at Nicole's and what he was wearing when he went over there. In the hypothetical, in the alleys where I parked... And in the hypothetical, I put on the cap and gloves. I don't even understand why he's doing this. I have no idea. Uh, OJ also noted that he usually kept a knife in his car. I always kept a knife in the car for the crazies and stuff because you can't travel with a gun. And I remember Charlie saying, you ain't bringing that to Nicole's. And I didn't, but I believe he took it in the book. After describing the scene, things got even weirder. And O.J. went from describing everything hypothetically to describing everything in first person. I go to the front and I'm looking to see what's going on. While I was there, a guy shows up. A guy I really didn't recognize. I may have seen him around, but I didn't recognize him to be anyone. In the mood I was in, I I started having words with him. Nicole then hears this argument and goes outside. And at that point... An even bigger argument starts, according to OJ. Nicole had come out, and we started having words about who is this guy, why is he here, what's going on. As things got heated, I just remember that Nicole fell and hurt herself, and this guy kind of got into a karate thing. And then I said, 
well, you think you can kick my ass? And then I remembered I grabbed the knife. I do remember that portion, taking the knife from Charlie. And from there, OJ told Reagan that he blacked out. To be honest, after that, I don't remember, except I'm standing there and there's all kinds of stuff around, blood and stuff. And then he kind of catches on to what he's saying. Yeah. And is like, uh, you know, of course it's all hypothetical. This is the hypothetical of what happened if I had done it. Yeah. And that recording was actually... It was... Oh, of course it was recorded. It was recorded and it was going to be published in a documentary on the making of the book. The documentary was not um, published, I guess. The yeah. uh, channel that was doing it was like, no, nope, we're not fucking doing this. Um, and so the uh, interview has never aired. But right. the book, if I did it, was published. Right. However, um, one good thing about the book is that even though OJ wrote it because of a later civil trial, OJ did not get the rights of the book. The yep. Goldman family did. Yep. And they decided to go ahead and publish it with um, the if on the cover being tiny. So basically the title is I Did It by OJ Simpson. Yep. And I, I will say... One of the only reasons I want to actually buy and read that book is mm-hmm. because I know the proceeds are going towards something exactly. good. Like, they're not going to OJ. They're not going, yeah. Which, that's one thing to think about when you are purchasing things that are, like, confession stories from mm-hmm. criminals. Like, if they wrote that, like, they may be getting stuff out of it. Yeah. And just, I, I don't know, it's like, not trying to be, like, mm-hmm. super ethical, but it's almost like, what's more important to you to, to hear what they said and actually read that? Or, I don't know, to not give them well, and even the like, praise by purchasing it. Like, even going to the websites of these horrible places, like, um, the, this is a little off topic, but, like, the Westboro Baptist Church. No, no, totally, yeah. That's something you mentioned that, before. that if you go to their website, they're getting clicks, they're getting ad revenue, and in that way, even if you f- do not agree with what they're saying, you think they're all fucking monsters which they are. You just gave um, them money. You're supporting them monetarily by giving them ad revenue and stuff. So just yeah. like, don't. <laughs> don't. Uh, yeah, just when you're, and this is something I've started to think about more and more and more mm-hmm. as we do our research and where we're going yeah. and what we're looking at. You just have to be aware of where that money or, mm-hmm. or there's a better word that I can't think of, but where that's going. Absolutely. Like where it's showing your support mm-hmm. to. Absolutely. So the families of Nicole and Ron filed a civil lawsuit against OJ in 96. Mm -hmm. Um, So the year after he was found not guilty in the criminal trial. Yeah. And on February 4th of 1997, the jury unanimously found OJ responsible for both deaths. So this is one thing, and maybe you can answer this, maybe you can't. But I've always been so confused as to how he was guilty in the criminal, or excuse me, how he, well, you know. How he was found not guilty in the criminal, but guilty in the civil. So, yeah, so the civil was like because the it was responsibility. A jury. No, I know it was a different jury. But, yeah. So if um. So what exactly was he found guilty of? He was found responsible for their deaths. So in the same way that let's say 
a cook is fully aware that they have a broken machine that's putting metal pieces into food. He serves it to two customers. They die. He would not be found guilty of murder, most likely. But if there were a civil case, he would be found responsible for their deaths. Is is that an easier way to kind of look at it? Yeah, yeah, okay, it is. Good. That was a really helpful example. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just made that up on the spot. It was a really good but made up. Yeah, it's probably so happened. Basically, in this case, this jury would have found him guilty of murder if this was a criminal trial. Yeah. Unfortunately, with it being a civil trial, they can't... There isn't jail time or any kind of legal consequence here. He was ordered to pay fines in the millions of dollars to the families. But unfortunately, due to loopholes around, like, specifically, it's like sports partnership money uh, not being under this, like, uh, it's not civil forfeiture, but under these payments, he hasn't really made any of the payments. No. Because his money comes from his sports and... You don't have to pay with that kind of money or something like that. I'm not entirely clear it's, on it's that. It's a loophole, so of course it's not but, clear. Yeah. Ma'am. So that is the story, or that is the case of uh, the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. Which, you know, I, I know you're not wanting to talk about OJ a ton, but no. one thing I will say is. I'm glad at least after all of the crazy Vegas shit or whatever yes. that he did go to prison. He did. And that they gave him the max sentence. And it was kind oh. of like this this fuck you of like, okay, we've got you in jail. We're going to keep you in as long as we can. Mm-hmm. But what's terrifying to me is that he's out now. And he's been yeah. out for like the last year or so. Maybe last couple of years. Yeah. No, I think just the last year. I think it, it was whatever. last year. But the... I honestly am just waiting for something else to happen because I oh, don't like with the the type of lifestyle he has led and the things that he did during like before he was mm-hmm. put in prison I feel like he's gonna get he's gonna be in jail again oh uh, yeah which is where I want him to be I don't want him Same. out on the streets he doesn't deserve to be free especially since <laughs> with the way this trial went and again like I'm not I'm not a lawyer. I wasn't on the jury, but yeah. I really, really strongly feel that he is extremely yeah. guilty. Me too. And, um, and it just breaks my heart that if he is guilty, because you can't be retried for the same crime. No. That Nicole and Ron's families are never going to get justice. They're never going to get justice because of double jeopardy. And yeah. And I will say it's one of those things like we talk often about how documentaries are biased and. When we watched Making a Murderer, how when I first mm-hmm. saw it, I was like, oh my god, he's innocent. Then I read more, and I'm like, oh my god, he's guilty. And I watched the second one, and now I'm like, I really don't know. I've never felt that way about OJ. I've no. always felt like, yeah, no, he's guilty. There's mm-hmm. never been an argument in in the case of his innocence that has been believable or yeah. reasonable. Yeah. It well, just, no. The only times that I was like, holy shit, OJ is innocent are when I was looking at it as he must be innocent because the cops are racist and framed him. And 
once I took a step back and looked at it, it was like, those two aren't mutually exclusive. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, I totally agree that the, the officers were racist, that Furman did tamper with evidence. That Absolutely. There was, that there was a lot of racist prejudice going on mm-hmm. doesn't mean he's not guilty. Yeah. That is just, yeah, exactly what you said. They're mutually exclusive. They can both be going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. So. Um, but yeah, no, every, everything I've looked at, all the research I've done, granted, again, I do this as like a hobby, not as any kind of professional. No. But there is no way he's not, if he is not the person responsible for the murder. He was involved. He was involved heavily. Yes. I.e. it was him or his son. Like, it, that's it. In my opinion. I share the same opinion. Yeah. Well, I don't really know how I'm going to follow that case but i mean i think i am okay and i think i'm going to do it well well while you do that i'm going to open bottle two do it the case that i am doing is the murder of sharon tate Ooh, okay however it's not just a murder of sharon tate there are a lot of other victims in this story it's more commonly known as the manson family murders so fun fact the only fun is it well the only thing i know from this case is what um was shown on last season of american horror story the cult season uh because they i had... actually don't know what was shown so they had an episode where it showed the basically the manson family murdering uh like, go into the house and murdering Sharon Tate and, like, a friend. Multiple friends, yeah. Um, but it was one of those that you could tell they kind of assumed you knew the story. And I didn't. So I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> um, yeah, this story is... Um, there's, a, there's a lot of details that I didn't know. Because before I started researching this... I didn't know a ton. Yeah. I mean, other than like, oh, okay, Manson didn't actually do the killing. He just convinced other people to do it. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert, if you didn't already know that. Uh, um, m- Most people know that part. Yeah, I, kn- I knew that part. Okay. So, other than like that and a couple other details, I really didn't know much. Uh, but one thing I want to preface, like yours, there's obviously a ton of detail in this in this series of cases that I'm not going to be able to touch on. And literally there are about umpteen zillion different documentaries and books and everything you can read about this if you want more information. Yeah. So mine, I try to touch on each of the, the topics and areas, but I'm fully admitting that I know there are holes uh, yeah. because I just can't, I can't fill it all. I just kept doing my Fair. research and finding more and more and more. And it got to a point where I was like, you know what? I you can't go down every single rabbit hole. Fair. Yeah. So the sources that I used were the History Channel, Time, a few Pop Sugar articles, which I thought was really weird, but yeah. there were a ton. Like, because huh. of the celebrity factor of Sharon Tate, they had some features on this yeah. case. That, okay. Um, I watched a documentary called Life After Manson on Amazon Prime. It's from 2014. Mercury News, New York Daily News, and the Washington Post, as well as a series of Wikipedia articles, because again, there were a lot of different topics and I went to Wikipedia. 
Fair. So on August 9th, 1969, 26-year-old actress Sharon Tate, who was the pregnant wife of the acclaimed movie director Roman Polanski, he he directed Rosemary's Baby, Chinatown, like very well known. Okay. I didn't know she was his wife. Yeah. Yeah. And they were having their first child. Oh, fuck. Uh, She was found murdered along with four other people at her Los Angeles home. The gruesome with four other people. Yeah, Jesus. so five total. This crime was extremely gruesome. The killers scrawled messages on the walls in the victim's blood. And it sent Hollywood into an absolute state of panic. Uh, yeah. The career criminal and cult leader, Charles Manson, and his followers who lived together on the outskirts of L.A. in a commune, where drug use and orgies were common, were later convicted as the murderers. Jeez. So that's what everyone knows. Okay. That general... Just the very basic of, like, yes. Manson family murdered Sharon Tate, her four friends, and it was culty and creepy and Hollywood freaked out. That's yes. the what people know. That, that's the very super high level of everything that happened. Okay. But I want to start with a little bit of a background of who Sharon Tate was. Mm-hmm. So Sharon Marie Tate was born on January 24th, 1943 in Dallas, Texas. Oh. So she's actually a Texas girl. There are oddly a few Texas connections in here, which I found very disturbing. But yeah. uh, they're in there. You'll see as they... It's a big state. <laughs> it is a big state. Uh, you'll see as they pop up, but which which also there's this like Texas California trade that's like yeah. all the time. You meet people here from California, and meet people. Actually, I feel like you meet people from Texas everywhere again because it's so big. Yeah, that's fair. People want to get the fuck out <laughs> or get in, like I did. Oh well, get not back too, I guess. Um, Sharon was one of three daughters of an army career officer. They traveled a lot. She spent a good portion of her teen years in Italy, where she became fluent in Italian. She had roles on TV in the Beverly Hillbillies and Petticoat Junction, which are a couple of different series. Uh Uh-huh. And she also appeared in the movies The Americanization of Emily and The Sandpiper. Okay. Neither of those I have heard of. Nope. When she moved to Los Angeles in the 1960s to pursue acting, she started appearing in some bigger roles like Eye of the Devil in 1966, The Fearless Vampire Killers in 1967, which was directed by Polanski, Mm -hmm. and then Valley of the Dolls in 1967, where she received a Golden Globe nomination. Okay, that one I've heard of. The others, nope. No, I've heard the Valley of the Dolls. I haven't heard of any of the others either. Yeah. She also was in The Wrecking Crew in 1969 and The 13 Chairs in 1969. Nope. So, when she and Polanski met, she was actually engaged to a man named Jay Sebring, who was a celebrity hairstylist. Okay. That obviously did not turn into a marriage. Uh, yep. Because in January 1968, Tate and Polanski were married. So at the time of her death, she was a wife, an expecting mother, and one of Mm. Hollywood's most promising rising stars. Mm. Like, she was just at the beginning of her career. Yeah. So the night of the murders, uh, Sharon was eight and a half months pregnant. Oh, fuck. She was, like, about to pop. She was about to have their son. Oh. She was spending time with friends at their house on Cielo Drive, which was this gorgeous secluded home I, I think it was like french farmhouse beautiful view in la's benedict canyon mm-hmm. so on august 8th 1969 
Roman was in London filming for the Day of the Dolphin. So he asked a couple of his friends, um, Wytek Frokowski and the Folgers coffee heiress, Abigail Folger, so like, you know, Folgers Coffee, uh, to stay at the house with Sharon while, you know, he was gone. He'd be back on the 12th. The best part of waking up is for to send your cup. Just going to throw that out there. And I'll let you do that. But okay. I had no idea that there was, that the Folgers family was connected in any way until I did uh, my research. Yeah. That I the mean, heiress was killed. That is... By the Manson family. Jesus. Yeah. So, um, Abigail and Wytek were hanging out there, and the three of them had dinner at Sharon's favorite restaurant, El Coyote, along with celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring. So apparently they're still friends. Well, that's good then. Yeah. um, Around 10.30 that night, they all went back to the house. Shortly after midnight on August 9th, the house was broken into by four members of the Manson family. Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Casabon. Oh, so three of them were women. Yeah, most of Manson's followers were. Huh. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Because I don't think, when I think like brutal murders and stuff, I mean, I, you think men, because usually brutal murders are done by men. Yeah. Well, and this was the 60s, and I'll go into a little bit more about the cult, but Manson had a lot of female admirers and followers, and, you know, he was somehow so manipulative to so many people, but a lot of them were women that were in the Manson family. Okay. So the four of these Manson family members were instructed by Charles Manson to go to that house where record producer Terry Melcher used to live. So apparently Manson had been this wannabe rock star and tried unsuccessfully to get a record deal from this guy and knew that's where he used to live. He did not get the record deal. And that's why this house was selected. He wasn't even there anymore. Did and Manson know that? I believe so. What the fuck? And he said, destroy everyone in that house and get as gruesome as you can. Jesus. So his members followed direction. Yeah. And what happened next would horrify the this, this seasoned homicide detectives that would later work that case. Because yeah, I bet, I mean, if you're working as like the L.A. homicide detective, you see a lot of shit. I'm sure. I'm I mean, sure. any big city, like, specifically focused on homicide detective or officer stuff, I mean, that must be a rough fucking job. Yes, and I just realized a couple of connections that our cases have, L.A. Yeah. and race, and you'll see oh, soon. okay. But, yeah. Watson entered the home and quickly encountered Frykowski, who was asleep on the living room couch. Mm-hmm. Tex, Tex Watson, immediately kicked him in the head. And when oh. Frankowski asked him who he was and what he was doing there, Tex said, I'm the devil. I'm here to do the devil's business. Fuck. Tex forced the others into the room, tied Sharon and JC Ring together by their necks with a rope, and slung the rope over the ceiling beams. Oh. When JC Ring protested this rough treatment of tate who was pregnant Mm -hmm. tex watson just shot him oh my god 
Folger and Frykowski were repeatedly stabbed, 28 and 51 times respectively. Fuck. Sharon Tate was inside pleading with the deranged murderers to be allowed to live to give birth to her baby. She even offered herself as a hostage. While it isn't known whether Tex Watson or Susan Atkins are the ones who killed Sharon Tate, she was stabbed 16 times while allegedly screaming out, Mother, Mother. Oh. Manson told Susan Atkins and Patricia Krenwinkle, Krenwinkle, excuse me, uh, who were both just 21 years old at the time. Oh my. So, like, they're kids. Yeah. He told them to leave a sign, something witchy, after the murders. So, using a towel, Susan Atkins wrote the word pig on the front door in Sharon Tate's blood. The next morning, Sharon Tate's housekeeper, Winifred Chapman, discovered the bodies when she arrived for work. Oh. Sharon Tate was found on her left side in the fetal position. She was wearing a floral bra and matching underwear. And the white nylon rope was still around her neck. And it was also still tied to Jay Sebring, the other end of it who was maybe four feet away from her at the time. Jeez. One of her breasts was nearly cut off due to the amount of slashing she received. Oh. And reports stated that an X had been carved into her stomach, but based on the coroner's report, that's not true. That okay. was reported in a few different things. Yeah. Um, the police on the scene were not able to save the baby. I mean, the baby had, had passed yeah. uh, at this time. Well, because you can't... When the mother dies, I think the baby can survive... Like, six minutes. Yeah, no, it's a very and short like, amount of time. Oh, my gosh. So, um, their son had passed as well. There was another victim, Stephen Parent, mm-hmm. who was found shot dead in his car in the driveway. He'd been shot in the face. Oh. And who was he? I, I'm not sure. He was just another victim that happened to, to be there, possibly someone's security guard or, or okay. something. I'm honestly not sure. Yeah. Outside of the two-story house... Sprawled out on the front lawn where the bodies of Folger and Prykowski were found. Oh. So these, the, the brutality of these killings, sh- like I said, it shocked the detectives. Yeah. This was not something that they were used to seeing, even with all the crazy things that do happen in L.A. Um, and the police sergeant stated that just looking at the scene, you knew that not one person was guilty of this. Well, I mean, Yeah. Bullets filled the ceilings, blood covered the floors, one of the windows was open, and dirt was on the window seal. Blood was splashed on the door seals at both the front and the back of the house. The telephone line had been cut at a pole outside, so whoever did that had to climb up 18 feet to cut the phone line with clippers. And then, that very next night, just 15 miles away, two more murders occurred. Oh, Leno LaBianca and his wife Rosemary were found by their kids stabbed and mutilated. Oh. So on the night of August 9th, Charles Manson, who was displeased by the performance of his family and he pledged to show them how to do it, drove six of the Manson family members, Leslie Van Houten, Steve Klim Grogan, and four from the previous night to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Why, why was he not pleased with their murders. I don't know. I mean, it seems like that's seems like they were exactly successful what we in, wanted. In it. Yeah, I, I have no idea. 
Earlier that year in March, Manson and some other family members had attended a party at this rented home of Harold True in La Felice. And Manson did not want to kill True because he thought maybe it could be traced back to him because they were just at that party. So he settled for the house next door where Leno and Rosemary LaBianca lived. So they just happened to be neighbors. Oh, my God. So after he drove the car up and down the street... Manson and Tex Watson got out of the car, disappeared walking together up up the driveway, and entered the home. Manson held the occupants at gunpoint, supposedly, while Watson tied them up. And Manson returned to the car to say he tied up the house occupants and he sent Krenwinkel and Van Hooten into the house. So the two 21-year-old girls. Yeah. Krenwinkel and Van Hooten took Rosemary to her bedroom as Watson murdered Leno in the den. Rosemary was murdered in the room, primarily by these two girls, with additional, quite possibly post-mortem wounds inflicted in her back by Van Hooten. Both victims were stabbed numerous times, and the word war was carved into Leno's stomach. Oh my gosh. A fork was also left protruding from his stomach. And Krenwinkel smeared words and phrases from or inspired by lyrics from recent Beatles songs, such as War, Helter Skelter, Rise, and Death to Pigs. All this all on the walls in the victim's blood. Oh my gosh. Um, I forget how much blood people have. Like, I'm... Like... No, I know a it's a gallon, it's like five liters, so it's like a gallon and a fourth is how much blood is in the human body. But I just forget how much that is. See, and I would think it'd be more. Because when you think about that, and whenever I think of gallons, I think of a milk jug, because that's what I think of. One and a quarter or one and a third gallon doesn't sound like a lot, but it that's so much. Well, I guess if you think about... Spilling a gallon of milk. That's a lot. I mean, yeah, that would cover your... I mean, if you dumped an entire gallon, it would cover your whole kitchen. It would. But just when people... Like, just the writing these words, I'm like, how do you have that much blood to write all of this? But, yeah. But you do. You do. Well, the LAPD was able to pin the crimes on a mystical, semi-religious, hippie drug and murder cult led by a bearded, demonic Mahdi able to dispatch his zombie-like followers. How the fuck did they get all of that from this? How did they know he was bearded? Like, I'm just little things like that. Like, how, what? Was Charles Manson bearded? Yes, he was bearded. But also, that's just, they obviously collected a lot of evidence to be able to get to this point. It I wasn't mean, yeah. just from this the murders. But, it was so from all of these crimes. And They knew this was Charles Manson and family. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, who was Charles Manson? I do want to do a little bit of a background on yeah, him. Yeah, because I literally know nothing about him. Other than apparently he was a wannabe rock star and people thought he was, like, basically their savior or something they're jesus yeah essentially well so charles had a very tumultuous early family life yeah he was born on november 12th in 1934 in cincinnati ohio and his mom kathleen maddox was 16 at the time of his birth Mm. she was allegedly an alcoholic and a sex worker and at one point reports say that she sold him for a pitcher of beer to a mother who wanted to have children 
What the fuck? Yeah, according to the story, his uncle had to, like, track him down uh, to get him back. He, oh, my God. He... Maybe sir- he would have had a better life with this mom who wanted kids. I mean, I don't know. I mean, who knows, but, yeah. He got into trouble starting at a very young age, and he began spending time in prison when he was 16. He was first put behind bars in 1951 and continuously served time almost, like, for the entire time until 1967 when he was wow. released. And he moved to San Francisco once he was let out. Yeah. In the late 60s is when he started to amass a group of followers. And it's not entirely clear how Manson managed to get so many people under his control. Yeah. But he was just extremely manipulative and he called these devoted individuals his family. Sometime around 1968, he moved to a huge ranch in Chatsworth, which was a city near L.A., Mm -hmm. and that became their home base for the Manson family, and the cult grew to about 100 different followers, mostly young girls. Wow. And a lot of the people that were in the Manson family were people who were lost, people who had either... Um, bad upbringings, or they had gotten themselves into very drug-filled situations. This is the 60s, so the hippie revolution is alive and well. Yeah. Drugs are flooding the streets, basically, and these people were very much into it, and so they found a leader, and and I think a lot of his manipulation was very much drug-induced, and he, he like, mind-fucked these people, essentially. It showed that, like, are you ever terrified that... Because I don't think I ever would, but when you read stuff about cults, so many of the followers are just, like, normal people. Sometimes I'm like, holy shit, like, what, like, what if that happened? Like, what if I got pulled into a cult or something and just, like, willingly just, I don't fucking, that stuff's so terrifying because people's minds are so moldable. Yes. And you have someone like that who feels who is so influential and so, I don't know, powerful in that, that they could just bring these people under their wing. That shit's fucking horrifying. It is horrifying. And I will say, if you're ever starting to join a cult, we'll, we'd, we'd pull you out because... You I would are hope not, so. You are not alone. You have people who is true. are with you and can pull you out of situations that you shouldn't be in. But I think that's why a lot of these members were the people who didn't have that. They yeah. were searching for meaning in their life, and they felt like they found that in Charles Manson and yeah. in his family. And um, he had this anger towards Hollywood and the music industry that stemmed from that early rejection I mentioned a bit ago. Mm-hmm. And there was at some point during his his time in L.A. where he met a music teacher named Gary Hinman. And Gary introduced him to Dennis Wilson, who was a member of the Beach Boys. Oh. From there... Manson became acquainted with Terry Melcher, who was the guy who did not give him the record deal, and who was also the son of actress Doris Day. Oh! So there are a lot of ties that Manson has with some pretty notable people. Yeah. You know, Terry was initially showed interest in this, you know, an album with Manson, but then he decided that he did not want to work with him. Mm Mm-hmm. So around this same time is when Terry moved out of the house on Cielo and Roman and Sharon moved into it. Okay. So there was, it was, you know, between 1967 and 1968. Yeah. So now I want to dive into a little bit of information of who 
these key players um, that we'll talk about in the Manson family were. Yeah. So the first one I want to talk about is Patricia Krenwinkel. And she was someone who started doing drugs very early in her life. She dropped out of college very much searching for herself. Like something that's not uncommon to a lot of people at this time in their lives. Yeah. She had a lot of influence from her older sister who was heavily into heroin, LSD. She tried to attempt suicide multiple times. Um, Her sister was a drunk. And so this was the example that Patricia was with. She lived with her sister. She would clean up her sister's blood when she had another suicide attempt. And just... Oh, my God. Patricia, therefore, was not the best judge of character when it came to meeting people. Yeah. So she met Charles Manson in 1967. They were at a party in L.A. She thought he was some type of mind reader because basically the things that he was saying, they really, they got to her. And she's like, she's this young, lost girl looking for direction. And when she Mm -hmm. starts hearing him saying all these things that are supposedly like answering all of her stuff, uh, her problems, she like saying everything she wants to hear. Yeah. She quickly, quickly fell in love with him. Um, So when this whole quote-unquote Manson family started, it was just the two of them. And she was in love with him. He was 13 years her senior. And Mm. she spent... He had, like, as I said earlier, he spent the majority of his life in prison. And she's this very easy-to-mold young girl. Yeah. Then the group started to grow even larger. And people were starting to worship him. And so Patricia just felt like one of the crowd um Mm -hmm. patricia ends up being one of the people who stabbed three of the seven victims the next person in the family is susan atkins and she had a really rough childhood as well with an alcoholic parent and her mom passing away from cancer in 1963 Mm. she moved around a lot she even ended up getting a job to help raise her brother after her mom passed yeah But in 1967, Susan Atkins met Manson when he was playing guitar at a house where she was living with some several friends. So, like, they were throwing a party and he was the guitar player. Mm -hmm. And when the house was later ransacked by police just a few weeks later, Atkins was left completely homeless. And Manson invited her to join his group. And at that time, they were embarking on this summer road trip in a converted school bus that they'd painted black. That's fucking weird. Yeah, it is. The next person in the family is Leslie Van Houten. She was born in August 1949, grew up in a very middle-class, church-going family Mm -hmm. with an older brother and two adopted siblings. Her parents divorced when she was 14, and by 15, she was very deep into drugs, such as LSD. Damn. Um, So, Leslie did end up living in a commune in Northern California, and she met two people, Catherine Cher and Bobby Buscelli. Mm-hmm. And she moved in with them and, the, and another woman who happened to be there as well in the summer of 1968. The four of them ended up breaking up after some jealous arguments. And Catherine Cher left to join Charles Manson's commune. And at that time, Leslie was 19 and followed her. Oh, dang. At this time, she phoned her mom to say she was dropping out and would not be making contact again. Oh, shit. Um, Manson decided when the people in his family would eat, sleep, have sex, whom they'd have sex with, 
He also controlled their their taking of LSD, giving his followers larger doses oh than he would himself take. And according to Manson, and this is from Leslie's words, when you take LSD enough times, you reach a state of nothing, of no thought. And according to Leslie, she became saturated in acid. That doesn't sound enjoyable. And could not grasp the existence of those living a non-psychedelic reality. So she was so drugged up all the time that she couldn't understand people not living that way. That is... Is how I was understanding that. Which, and to be fair, that is... I mean, that's a culture I have never been a part of, never experienced. So I can't... To, to that extent, I can't judge her for, like... No. Be, because the all the people she's around, everyone she knows, doing drugs and everything is this thing. And obviously, drugs are enjoyable. That's why people do them. So, like, I get it. Yeah. But, God, what... Became all she knew. That sounds horrible. Like, just... Yes, it does. Ugh. But I guess if you're in in the moment and in that world that's not horrible you're like yes i want to be dripping in acid i want yep the next person in the family (laughs) charles tex watson he was born in farmersville texas on december 2nd 1945 sounds like a texas town well his middle name is or he goes by tex so obviously he's our other texas connection i mean his middle name's tex he's from farmersville texas which honestly sounds made up i does but it also sounds very texas i know i don't think texas is middle name i think it's just what he goes by well uh, the yeah that's i don't know if i did i say middle name you did oh well his nickname yeah well he so he's the youngest of three kids and he ended up moving to denton to go to unt it's yeah it's near denton it's one county over yeah so crazy we drive past his college anytime we go north yeah in January 1967, Watson began working at Braniff International as a baggage handler mm. and using some... Wait, what? I Sorry, I watched a documentary on Braniff Airways. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, like two weeks ago. Well, um, Tex used to be one of their employees and he would use this free airline to travel to California that's to visit his frat bros. Horrifying. It also used to be one of the biggest airlines in the world. Really? It went defunct in the 80s, but it had oh. a huge office in Oklahoma City. Oh. It was, when it went down, I think its headquarters was in Dallas, I want to say. Yeah. But it had a huge office in Oklahoma City. And during the oil downturn in the 80s and the Penn State Bank closure, it was another one of the businesses that failed in Oklahoma City. And it basically ended the Oklahoma City renaissance until the early 2000s. That's crazy. I I had heard of it, but I didn't know exactly what it was. No, but like I said, so he would use his airline miles to go visit his friends in California, his fraternity brothers. Ugh. And there, of course, he became very interested in the psychedelic and music lifestyles of the 60s. Mm-hmm. And he met some women who were in the Manson family. Then he met Charles Manson. Mm. He then soon after decided to join the Manson family. The next one is Linda Cassavane. And she was raised in New Hampshire and had moved to L.A. to live with the man she married. She said that she ended up joining the Manson clan in the summer of 1969 because she felt rejected by her husband. Wow. this There are just so many different people and different backgrounds and all, all walks in this cult. Yeah, it's insane. And 
Like I said, it's unfortunately was difficult for me to focus the majority of my case on Sharon Tate because there is yeah. so much background information to make it all make sense. And yeah. the next piece I'm about to go into is one of the biggest pieces of why this cold existed and what their purpose was and what their mission was. Yeah. And I again will say that there is so much more information I could go into on this but there are literally books you can read about this because yeah. it's so detailed but Helter Skelter is something that is very much related to Manson I and, don't know what Helter Skelter is well Helter Skelter is actually a phrase that oh. means disorderly haste and confusion however Charles Manson often spoke to the members of his family about Helter Skelter as an apocalypse apocalyptic war arising from racial tensions between blacks and whites and charles manson's also a racist got it yes yes so but this involved reference to the music of the beatles and to the new testament's book of revelation manson and his followers were convicted of all of these murders based on the prosecution's theory that they were part of a plan to trigger this helter-skelter scenario. What the fuck? <laughs> so I'm going to try, try to explain this. Um, What are you looking up? I, sorry, I wanted to see what young Charles Manson looks like because I've seen him in the prison photos from like a couple years ago when he's this old-ass bald guy with a gross fucking beard. That's and... Charles Manson to you? Yeah. Because to me, I picture what you're looking at right now, the crazy-haired man the, with the dark brown beard and mustache. Yeah. He's so small. Yeah. Big man syndrome galore. Because, like, okay, uh, sorry, here's a, and we'll post this picture on our Instagram. Okay. Um. Oh, it's a comparison photo? Yeah. Yep. And here's the picture that I think of when I see him next to... The, I guess, one from Younger with the wild hair. Yeah. Well, and what's funny, and I will say shows our age difference, I knew him as the original, the, the, the photo of him from the 60s when he was arrested for all of this. When I was doing my research is when I saw the recent one. Really? Yeah. So, um, save that photo. I am. Because, yeah, we'll totally post it. Um, okay, so now I'm going to dive into what I tried to make a simple explanation of the helter-skelter scenario in this apocalyptic war that Manson believed was going to happen. So the plan for helter-skelter mm-hmm. was that all the white women in the world would join the family. and That's they would... a lot of people. Also, who do you consider white? Dude, I, I don't mean, even know. Okay. That goes so much deeper into it. You need to read the book. Helter Skelter, which I will talk about later. Um, so all the white women would join the family and they would no longer be available to satisfy the black men. The black men would be in a rage and a racial war would break out. This because is some racist ass bullshit. Oh, it gets worse. Oh, God. So the black man would, you know, be in a rage and all the while, the Manson family, they're going to be hidden in death valley which was a secret underground city while all how he gonna fit let's say minimum half a billion people into death valley california the fucking desert you know he a dumbass but this is why i wouldn't be good in a cult because i'd raise my hand and be like uh how 
and then probably get kicked out. Probably, or killed, actually. Well, yeah, prob- yeah, okay. So, after all the blacks killed oh, all the whites, God. the Manson family would then emerge. They would leave Death Valley. Like and some nasty-ass bugs. They'd be the only whites around, and they would take over. Oh, my God. No, literally, it's the worst, and I feel, I hate saying all this right oh, now, by the way. Oh, my God. So, this is where it gets really weird. This? This is where it gets really weird? So, when the Beatles' White Album came out, which was their first one, yeah, Charlie listened to it over and over and over and over, and he was very certain that the Beatles had tapped into this same spirit of truth. Oh my god. And that everything was going to come down to the black man, they're gonna rise. And it wasn't that Charlie was listening to the Beatles and started following what they were saying. It yeah. was that he thought the Beatles were talking about what he'd been expounding for years. So like that they were on the same page as him. They were revealing all these things in oh their songs. God. And that every song on the White Album, he felt like they were singing about the family. And there is a song called Helter Skelter that he, as in Manson, was interpreting to mean that the blacks were going to go up and the whites were going to go down. And I promise I you, there words. is so much I'm leaving out because it is rooted so deep. If you want to look at even just the, the Wikipedia article on Helter Skelter, it goes line for line some of the the, the lyrics in the Beatles songs and mm-hmm. what the lyrics were and what Manson believed they meant. See, because I... I don't really know the Beatles music. I don't. I don't really like the Beatles. Um, I know a couple songs because everyone does, but well, I love the Beatles, and so I know. I'm it, very broken right I now. I apologize because literally everyone likes the Beatles, so I'm sure everyone listening to this is clutching. You their don't chest. like the Beatles. You don't like movies. How do you have friends? Well, that's the thing. I don't. Oh my god! It's just me and the dogs. Uh huh. Yeah. When I say I'm going out with friends, um, I just wander the streets and cry. Maybe you shouldn't do that anymore. <laughs> well, you know. No, I... Like, the Beatles are good. And I I understand the influence and the insane massive impact that they had on music well, that and, still echoes to today. Yeah, and I'm just going to interrupt you because think of all of that and then tie in what I'm fucking telling you. Oh, I like, know. this is insane. Like, because there's... I cannot think of an artist or band of the past 20 years or so that is anywhere near as influential as the Beatles. Because to me, the Beatles rival, like, Elvis as, like, when influential when it comes to popular music. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, that's the... But I also don't really like Elvis. Well, I mean, Elvis is, like, whatever. I mean, like, I, mean, I like him, but I'm not, like... But I don't see, like him like I like the Beatles. I feel like the Beatles could have made an album of them, like... I don't know... Literally, like, diddling with a guitar and coughing, and people would have cried and been like, this, this is music! Like, literally, or, like, flipped through a dictionary and, like, picked 35 random words, sang them, and people would be like, ah! Which I actually think would be a pretty cool idea. I mean, I don't know. It might be. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, come on, these people are on, like, LSD and stuff. No, whatever, but I'm just saying... I, I appreciate them for their impact as far as music quality. I don't think it's that great. Well, I also I listen to Parody So Girls, so it's, you know, <laughs> does my opinion matter? To me, no. it does. I'm going to end your Beatle bashing because wow. I still have a lot to go. Okay. <laughs> okay, so 
In the months before the murders happened, the Manson family uh, was preparing for Helter Skelter, which they thought yeah. was inevitable. They prepared vehicles and other items for their escape to Death Valley. Okay. They poured over maps. They plotted routes that would bypass highways, get them to the desert safely. And Manson was convinced that the song Helter Skelter contained a coded statement of the route they should follow. Okay. I didn't look into the lyrics because I didn't want to dive down this rabbit hole that much. Oh my god. Also, what the fuck? (laughs) Right? And the fact that he was able to get like 100 people to fully believe all of this. I can't. I know. So, the murders were supposed to be the the kickoff for Helter Skelter. Yeah. So, now I'm going to jump into the trial and sentencing. And I apologize. I know I'm bouncing around a lot, but literally, how could I not? There's so much. Yeah. I tried to organize this in the best way I could. Okay. So, now I'm going to get into the trial and the sentencing. Okay. From all of the murders, the Tate murders, and the LaBianca murders. I wonder how they fucking got caught. Because they're... God. Well, that's actually what I'm about to jump into. I mean, I figure. If you're going to go into the trial and sentencing, I figure you're probably going to start with how they got caught. Yes, I am. So, Manson and his followers were arrested in November 1969. Not because of the murders, but because of suspected auto theft. Oh. And eventually, through a series of confessions, Manson and the his family... Uh, were all indicted in the murders and put to trial. Wow. So the police are getting there being, you know, they're walking up being like, oh, yeah, we're going to get them to confess still in this Cadillac. They walk in. Someone's like, look, okay, I know we murdered these people. It wasn't my fault. And they're like, oh, my God. Well, and a lot of it is just like more so bragging rights and we're getting out to the wrong people and then them like putting their foot in their mouth. So, um, their proceedings began in June 1970. Yeah. Yeah, so like a year after the initial murders happened. Yeah, okay. Or thereabouts. So, Manson was found to be the mastermind behind the murders, Mm -hmm. and although he was not physically present at the killings, he sent his family to carry out the act. Um, This is with the Tate murders, because as we discussed, he supposedly was there for the second set of murders the next day. Yeah. The reality of that, I don't really know. So, the... Manson's subsequent trial became Mm -hmm. a national spectacle in which he exhibited very bizarre, violent behavior throughout the entirety of it. Mm. He was convicted and given the death penalty for all seven murders and conspiracy to commit murder for the August deaths of actress Sharon Tate, Abigail Ann Folger, Wytek Frykowski, Stephen Earl Parent, Jay Sebring, Lino LaBianca and Rosemary LaBianca. And the sentence was commuted to life behind bars when the California Supreme Court overturned the death penalty law in 1972. Okay. I was wondering. So I was like, one. I saw the look on your face. (laughs) Death penalty? How? Second, I didn't know California the death penalty state. The answer lies in the next sentence. Gotcha. They were, but then they weren't. So after the trial, the members of the Manson family shamelessly admitted their crimes and flaunted their allegiance to the leader whom they said... these assholes. Oh yeah. Whom they said they loved and who was portrayed as controlling their minds. Charles Manson can suck a dick in hell. (laughs) Literally. Probably is right now. It's just 
mind-boggling because even after these women were convicted, they're still, like, loyal to him. I say women. There it, were also men, but... It just makes me sad for them. Like, me too. that's how lost they are. But at some point, there has to be a level of personal responsibility in this. Absolutely. And like, I think it does come later for them. Yeah. But, like, yes, were they indicted on these charges as well or just yes so that's what i'm about to go into so manson patricia krenwinkel and charles tex watson were convicted of all seven murders Mm -hmm. five on the eighth uh which was sharon tate and her friends and two on the ninth which was leno and rosemary la bianca patricia during her trial said that during the murders at the Tate home, she chased down Abigail Folger. We fought on the grass. I remember stabbing her, stabbing and stabbing. Grenwinkel also admitted to helping kill the LaBiancas the following night. Susan Atkins was arrested in October 1969 in the murder of Gary Hinman. If you remember, I mentioned him a lot earlier, who introduced Manson to the member of the Beach Boys, Dennis Wilson. Yeah. So he was, Gary was also killed. Oh, so at this point, the police did not know who was responsible for the Tate-LaBianca murders, and Atkins actually implicated herself in jail when she reportedly started telling her cellmates that she had stabbed Tate, t- tasted her blood, and wrote pig on the front door of the house. What the fuck? Yeah, so she totally did that to herself, and she was convicted of five murders on August 8th. Yeah. And said that during the August 9th murders, she stayed in the car. Why do... Why do criminals do that? Yeah, because... I don't know. Do they literally think there are cellmates who be like, you're cool, you're one of us. They're literally going to be like, a guard, can I get a new uh, cellmate? This one is fucking in... Like, she's a goddamn murderer. No, and not even that. It's, hey, I have information. Can I get time off my sentence? I mean, that too. <laughs> like, but even from just like a another perspective, it'd be like, uh, the fuck? Yeah. I'm in here because I... Stole a car or whatever. Bitch is talking about drinking blood and writing pig on the wall. (laughs) I want out of here. (laughs) Like, yo, I'm sorry. Who do I have to... Who do I have to apologize or pay? Can I just call the warden? Like, I need new... Like, can I just go to prison now, but a different one? So, Leslie Van Hooten was convicted of the two murders on the 9th. Van Hooten said she recalled stabbing LaBianca in the abdomen 14 to 16 times and showing That's little remorse. <laughs> yeah. She, she showed very little remorse in the courtroom for her, her actions and <sighs> admitted to wiping away fingerprints and burning her clothing to get rid of evidence. Mm-hmm. And she even testified that she took chocolate milk and cheese from the fridge before leaving the crime scene. What the fuck? She needed a little snack. Steve Clem Grogan also remained in the car during the two murders on the August on August 9th, the La Bianca murders. Mm-hmm. He was convicted of the murder later that month of ranch hand Donald Shorty Shea. So again, there's like more murders that oh I'm gosh. not even able to go into right now. Yeah. Linda, who allegedly never entered the house, the Tate house during the murders, she said she was keeping watch in the car. She was charged in all seven murders, but served as a key eyewitness for the prosecution and received immunity in exchange for her testimony against Manson. Like complete immunity? Complete immunity. Fuck! So, 
texts Patricia and Susan, who had received the death penalty along with Manson for all yeah. seven of the murders, it was also commuted to uh, life sentences. Tex and Patricia are still serving their life sentences in prison, and Susan passed away in prison in 2009. Since his trial, Manson has become a criminal icon and the subject of so many books, so many movies. Yeah. People are fucking obsessed with this dude. Yeah. But last year, at the age of 83, on November 19th, he died. And according to authorities, he passed away at a hospital in Kern County, California, from natural causes. Okay. At the time of his death, he was serving his time at the Kukoran State Prison in California. He had been denied parole for the 12th time in 2012. And his next parole hearing would have been set for 2027. So, like, literally, there was no way he was ever going to fucking get out. Also, 2027, like... Yeah, I feel like he was going to be dead before that one came up. Uh, and they knew yeah. it. Because I mean, he would have been, what, 93 in 27? Yeah, no. Like, yeah, not going not gonna to be around. No. So, Manson obviously is remembered for his ability to manipulate people, his failed musical aspirations, and his true, true capacity for absolute evil. Mm-hmm. But... His legacy will also include another unintended positive consequence. And this is because of Sharon Tate's death. Her mother began a lot of work Mm -hmm. and her sisters for the rights of victims' voices to carry weight in the national legal system. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, in the nation's legal system. And none of Manson's minions, part of his family, I guess, Mm -hmm. save for Clem Grogan have seen any type of freedom. So, you know, anyone involved in the Tate murders or the ones um, the next day, yeah. they're all, no one has ever been released. Yeah. Doris Tate helped to get the victim's Bill of Rights, which allowed for victim impact statements, which is extremely important. She got that passed in California in 1982, and now all 50 states allow victims to speak either written or orally at certain phases of the legal process. So, this has made, you know, Sharon Tate's death be something that got victims' rights on the board and recognized and something that is an extremely important part of the legal process that we do now. Absolutely. So, that is the case of the murders of Sharon Tate, Abigail Folger, Wytek Frykowski, Stephen Parent, and the LaBianca couple. God. And like I said, there's so much I didn't go into. Oh, yeah. But it's insane the amount of fame that has been given to Charles Manson. I mean, everybody knows Manson. Oh, yeah. You may not know all the details of what he did and what his cult was, but you, but know, you know Manson. Him, the cult leader, the murderer in prison. Like, that's... You You know him. You don't know Sharon Tate. I know. And like, isn't it sad? Know. Yeah. Because she was absolutely beautiful. She was on the brink of a wonderful career. Mm-hmm. She was about to be a mom. Yeah. You know, it's like her whole life, everything had fallen into place, and it was taken from her. She was 26. God. So, That's insane. It really is. And I don't... 
And with both of our cases, mm-hmm. it I hate how difficult it was to focus on the victims. And, oh, same. And maybe what I'm about to say could be argued against by some people, but I feel like a lot of the Manson family members were in a way victims themselves. I agree. Now, granted, they're serving time for what they did. Oh, yeah. And well, a lot of them have denounced him they've apologized and they're just continuing to serve their time when well, they deal with that guilt every day you can absolutely be a victim and also responsible for the crimes that you did do yes but th- that doesn't take away the fact that a lot of the family members they were influenced they were i don't want to say under his control but under his influence and under his power yeah but again a you see it in so many murder cases and so many things a shitty childhood does not give you the right to murder someone no it doesn't you know no amount of you know your parents divorcing or um, abuse or any of that gives you the right to murder an innocent person not at and all. it's horrible that you know these people did go through this and that they are victims under Charles Manson Mm -hmm. and under their families in these circumstances. But they are also very guilty of these murders. Extremely. They, you know, fed into the influence and the manipulation of Charles Manson and they made decisions that had consequences. Well, it kind of, I'm going to tie it back and we'll see how it fits. But in the same way that OJ was the victim of these racist police officers planting this evidence and trying to frame him and trying to destroy him because they're white and racist asshole fucking monsters. But that doesn't mean that he isn't also guilty of murdering someone. Potentially. Granted, yeah, potentially. I, I he say isn't that guilty for legal reasons. That is true. He's not guilty. That is true. He, he is be. not guilty of be. this. He is potentially... Theoretically, guilty, totally confessed in that thing, hypothetically. Yeah. But, but like it, you you can absolutely, and I I feel like ninety percent of the murders we cover, in many ways, the killers, the murderers, are victims of something in some way. But that drove that, them to do what they did, or affect or uh, like compounded on you know into something that caused them but that by well, no means you say gives... that and and I will say I, I just want to put it out there there are a lot of people that we have covered as well who are in no way shape or form victims absolutely. of anything absolutely and they, and they did things and they're monsters and so I just wanted to make sure y'all no, don't that... think we're throwing the word victim around loosely that's we're absolutely true. not but it's just yeah I don't know. I'm just saying I think like Yes, you can be a victim, and that's horrible, but you in no way have any right to ever murder anyone. Like, no. don't fucking murder people. No. Don't murder people. Nothing that happens ever I guess this was our postmortem. That. We didn't talk about it, but this is our postmortem. Oh, this is our postmortem. <laughs> Going into postmortem. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, mm, you talk first. I don't want to. I'm st- I don't know. I'm still trying to decide. I... I almost feel like mine was bigger. I well, that's what I'm saying. I think. Um, I, I, I mean, they I were think both huge. They are, but I think just the impact, and also 
I can't get over the fact that Sharon Tate was eight and a half months pregnant. Yeah. And the the randomness of everything. and It was. It was like it was calculated, but also random. So, I'll... I, yeah, I, I think your case, or I guess is the winner in this episode, uh, was the bigger one. Yeah. But, fuck. I'll take it, because I do... I, I agree. I mean, like, while OJ was ridiculously infamous, and that case was the trial of the century... Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, and Nicole and Ron were brutally, brutally murdered. They were, but so were all of the victims in your case. I mean, every yes. everyone was tortured. They were. They were absolutely tortured. Um, I, I do feel like, unfortunately, Charles Manson paved the way for some things that would happen later. Because mm. again, this was in the '60s, and we have talked repeatedly about yeah. how much happened in the '70s. Yeah, and I can't. And I have no evidence to back this up that I have read, but I feel like there has to be some type of influence well, you, in some of the other you can serial never, killers we've talked about. I think the biggest mistake you can make in a lot of these crime cases is to try to put them in a bubble and try to separate them from the world around them because they're all influenced by other factors yeah. happening in the world. Absolutely. And it's stupid to think that, you know, the Ted Bundy murders in the 70s might not have been influenced by Charles Manson. Maybe they weren't. I mean, but maybe but they were. There's an equal chance that they that they were and that this kind of notoriety, this kind of yeah, these murderers becoming celebrities themselves influenced these serial killers moving forward. Mhm. No, absolutely. Absolutely, 100% agree. Well, I will pick our wine for next week. And I will pick our topic. And on that, just want to say go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And I know that was not a smooth transition. I never know how to transition out of the postmortem. I mean, that's true. But it's also, it's always at like the depressive moment of cases where they're over and we're like, well, fuck, I just want to drink more wine and think about what we've done. I know. I just want to finish <laughs> this glass of wine. But, yeah. So, go rate and review us. Yes. A five-star review will be super helpful. Leave a, we'll leave a couple sentences. Let yeah, us know us what, what you, you liked. Um, I I love reading reviews on iTunes. I do, too. Y'all, touching my damn heart. Always, always. So, touch it more. Yeah, weird. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, but also make sure to like and follow us on our different social media platforms. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We also have a website, bloodandwinepodcast.com, where we have a, uh, you can listen to our podcast there. You yes, can read you a little can. bit about us. Uh, we also have a blog for each of our episodes. So we are working on getting all of those episode notes yes. up. Yes. Um, We're it's it's a slow process, but if you have um I always think of this when I think of uh like podcast blogs or the flip side audiobooks. If you have any uh friends, family, anyone you know that is hearing impaired but you know they love true crime, send them to send the blog. Them to the blog. Yeah. I mean I cuz I I know podcasts are huge for people with visual impairments who, uh, you know, would love to read more about true crime. They yeah. have audiobooks. You want us to do a podcast about it? Awesome. 
And I think it's so great to have a platform on so many different levels so you can reach so many people that have an interest in this subject. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It really is. But, okay. With that. Thank you all so much. Yes. We love y'all. XOXO. Blood and Wine sending off. Bye. Bye.